This week I read a report by some scholars who track the growth and health of the Christian movement from a, sociolo a sociologist's viewpoint. And the article noted that about 63% of Americans today identify with at least one branch of the Christian faith. While 63% is still a majority, that percentage is noticeably lower than in past decades. Just 10 years ago, that number was 75%. This decline is accompanied by the rise of a group that sociologists called the nuns. Perhaps you've heard about this. Nuns aren't people in black habits anymore, but the rise of the nuns, when we talk about those, uh, appeared when religious identification polls began to add another option to their polls. So along with Roman Catholic and Protestant and Orthodox and then Jewish, atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu and Mormon and a few others, they added the term none or like none of the above. Having this option, more and more people through this kind of polling that goes on every year have opted for none. Depending on which studies we read, today between 25% and 30% of all Americans will check none if they have that option. In other words, we're part of no official organized faith. How does that trend affect the church at large is one of the questions that rises in my mind. The Pew Research Center reports that for every one person who joins the Roman Catholic Church today, seven leave. Mainline churches have been losing members at an alarming rate for decades. Putting all of this together, and there's a lot more of that kind of data, the PRRI, Public Religion Research Institute, forecasts that Christians will become a minority group in the United States by 2050. Now, before you get alarmed or depressed over this kind of data, let me present one contrary idea. One of the most prominent researchers in the field of the sociology of religion has been Rodney Stark, who died in July at the age of 88. Stark was known for playing it straight and writing about whatever the facts of his research would tell him. Christianity Today magazine wrote that Stark noted that many researchers have neglected two key factors among Christian life when they put together all of these polls and try to forecast where they think the church is headed. Those two key factors are revivals and religious innovation. So revivals are movements by God that awaken the church and stir up a hunger in the unchurched part of our society. Religious innovation refers to the ability of Christian churches and leaders to adapt to the changes and challenges that are around us. Rodney Stark wrote more than 30 books. Most notable were two studies the first was called The Churching of America from 1776 to 1990, and the second was called The Rise of Christianity. The first work tracked the growth of Christian faith in the United States over a 215-year period. The second book traced how Christianity grew from a tiny minority group to become the dominant faith in Europe during the period from the time of Christ through the first three centuries A.D. Through his work, Stark pointed out the resiliency of the church. There were so many forces working against the early church that its growth and spread defied all expectations. So here's what I'm wondering. Here's what we wonder today. Is it still possible for the church today to rise up in a new way and see a better future? 
This morning we're going to begin this new series that we're calling Faith Explosion that looks at principles that contributed to the spread of the Christian faith in the earliest years of the Christian church. And so doing this, we're going to, in doing this, we're going to look at a, at a deep dive into Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4, mining out principles that worked then and trying to lift them up and then figure out, figuring out which ones apply to the setting that we live in today. Today's topic is giving them Jesus. Welcome to North River Church today. I'm so glad that you're here. If you're new or this is your first time, I'd like to welcome you and hopefully you will learn something about who we are and what we believe here at North River Church. We're not going to put you on the spot. We're not going to ask you to identify yourself. But thank you for taking the time to worship God and learn with us. I'm glad that so many are here in our Pembroke campus this morning and that you got the memo that we started at 9 o'clock today and we will be until next summer and we'll be back at 11. And I also want to welcome those warmly who are watching online with us today. You are part of our congregation. Let's keep inviting friends to join this experience with us however you are taking this in and let's keep learning and exploring God's word together. There's some simple ways to connect with North River and to come out of the shadows and, and begin the conversation with us. If you're online, you can go to our website, northriverchurch.org forward slash visit, and, and a connection card will pop up when you do that. You can fill that out online and send it to us. Or if you're here, you can grab, uh, ask for a, a welcome a connection card at the Welcome Center across the lobby. If, if you do that, that ends up on my desk and we begin to have a conversation either by email or phone or letter, however you choose. Here's our vision statement that I want to start off with as we begin the fall together. People being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. We are people who are not static. We are being changed by the gospel and by our experience of the love of God, but God sends us out to bring that change wherever we go and to little by little impact the entire South Shore and wherever God leads us with his grace and with his love. Today's question is, are there principles we can learn from the past that make us resilient today? Resilient as individual Christians and resilient as a church. And I'd like to present to you four what I'm calling give them Jesus principles that arise from Acts chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. Here's the first one. Keep spiritually healthy habits. If you want to be a resilient Christian, if we want to be a resilient church, this needs to be ringing throughout our experience where we are setting and keeping spiritually healthy habits. Notice verse 1 says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Notice that this event occurred on the way to worship. Peter and John were on their way to the temple in Jerusalem. They would gather with others at a set time to pray and they would encourage each other. Luke, the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, tells us that they were headed there at the time of prayer. If you got a pen out and you circle that phrase, at the time of prayer, what it means is that there was a set time when people in that particular location in Jerusalem knew that the Christians, that the Jewish people who believed in Jesus would gather together in the temple courts and they would pray together. They would pray over the day that had just happened. They would pray over the day that was going to come. They would pray for each other. They would pray over the needs that they had. There was no church building. There was no separate place with a sign that said First Church of Jerusalem. But they gathered to pray before all that other stuff was organized. I love this about the earliest church. It's a great observation. 
In other words, God's power was on display as they were going about keeping the habits that they had set, these spiritually healthy habits. They were not praying for something miraculous to happen that day or for something special to occur. But while they were keeping this pattern, while they were on their way to the temple, both the opportunity and the power of God showed up right in front of them. That tells me something. That when you and I are practicing on a regular basis spiritually healthy habits, we should expect that God intervenes in the midst of that environment and that he uses us and that he shows up in our lives in powerful ways. This is the best argument I can make for establishing strong spiritual habits. Many people wait to call on God until they're in trouble or they're in the midst of a crisis. When we do this, we relegate God to the crisis response box that we put him in. Peter and John did not do this. They didn't operate that way. And powerful ministry flowed through the course of their spiritual habits. Since many laborers began work early in the morning, this meant that they were gathering after work in the afternoon as work was coming to a close for daily prayer. What is your spiritual maintenance plan? And is it a steady one? Is it a strong one? If you, if you have established a spiritual health plan, how often do you reevaluate it and find out if you need something more? If you have not established a spiritual health plan, this would be a great time to do that as we begin the fall together, a whole new season. Around here, fall becomes one of those times when a number of things ramp up and, and get in gear again. We go back to two services to make room for more people. A number of our small groups and Bible studies start up after a summer break. A healthy plan will include some kind of ratio of worship, prayer, engagement with the Bible, and fellowship. You know, there are a number of studies that are tracking what happens with high schoolers when they leave our homes and they go off to college, and they find that those who only seem to engage with their Christian faith through the official church meetings on Sunday mornings have a harder time as they move out into those independent years. But those who have engaged with the Bible, those who have established habits of prayer and connecting in some kind of fellowship tend to do much, much better in terms of having a resilient faith through those early developmental years. That's true for all of us. I have a small group of pastors who've been meeting together for more than 15 years. But our schedule wasn't as regular during the couple of years when COVID-19 was dominating everything. And then this summer, we, we took a summer break. So it was interesting, this past week, as I was preparing this message, I got a call from a couple of the guys saying, Paul, when are we going to gather together again? Come on, you're the one who organizes us. Uh, let's go. Let's get, get this in gear. I love that. I love hearing from those guys. We, we depend on each other. We share a lot with each other. We are not competing with each other in terms of how we lead our churches, even though we know that there's sometimes there are people who will move from one to the other because we're doing the same thing and we're doing it in partnership. And so I look forward to seeing those guys this Tuesday. Keep spiritually healthy habits. It's one of the strongest things that you can do to launch this fall. Here's principle number two. Practice the discipline of noticing. Verses 2, 3, and 4. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. 
And then Peter said, look at us. Why was this guy here? Some friends had carried him to one of the temple gates so that he could beg there every day. This lame man had become a fixture at the temple gates. He couldn't get there on his own, so friends would carry him there each and every day. And he would beg for coins, hoping that people on their way to worship would be kind and they would notice him. How are people like this often treated in our world today? Some people, perhaps you've done this, have a little extra set aside to give those people that they notice who, who need help or are asking for help or begging for help, especially if we go into the city. I ran across a man outside of a store here on the South Shore a few months ago playing his violin. He was really good. And as I went into the store, I wondered if he'd still be there when I came back. And so I made a note to check that out. And I walked over near him and I, and I listened to him. And he had a sign out and he was asking for some help. So I had a couple of dollars that I had planned to give him. And yet I wondered, with all of the help wanted signs were out, I wondered, you know, why is this guy out there playing in the parking lot when he had such phenomenal talent? And I began to engage him in a conversation and I quickly found he didn't want to talk with me. This was his job. This was, this was better for him than, than having a, a regular job where he received regular compensation and it, it was a choice. But I noticed and that conversation wouldn't have come about without noticing and stopping for a moment. Take a closer look at the person that Peter and John met that day. He wasn't there asking God to heal him. Perhaps he had given up all hope. His expectations had been lowered to simply hoping that he could receive a few spare coins. So he asked Peter and John for money. And when they paid attention to him and they noticed, the text here tells us that he expected that money was coming his way. I imagine that many other people walked right by him because they saw this man every day. Same guy there all the time and no matter how much they give him, nothing changes. He's going to be there the next day asking again. But Peter and John both looked right at him and they saw something. They noticed even as the others walked by. I almost have in my mind a picture of this crowd of people who are moving their way through the temple gates, some for business, some to gather for this prayer time that was going to happen at 3 o'clock. And Peter and John stop in the midst of all of this movement, and people have to walk around them, and they're noticing for the first time, perhaps this guy standing or sitting just off to the side with his hands up asking for help. I wonder how often God may want to do great gospel things through us, but we're going about our day without expecting much from God. I want to commend our GO team for identifying needs that we could meet last Sunday. This is an annual event, and it's hard over the course of the summer because right in the time when everybody else is on vacation and things are stopped, our team is going out and looking for opportunities so that we can kick off our fall on the Sunday closest to 9-11 where we go out and serve together and spend most of the afternoon doing that. I know that we didn't necessarily dabble in the miraculous. At the same time, what we attempted to do and what we accomplished was noticed. Last Sunday afternoon started for me at the Marshfield Boys and Girls Club and then continued on at the Veterans Park in Marshfield. The town of Marshfield had a 9-11 remembrance event set up behind the Boys and Girls Club. And our Chris Goodman showed up the day before getting the grounds where this celebration was going to take place all spiffied up. 
Thank you, Chris Goodman. Thank you for having the foresight to go in early. And then a larger team from North River dressed up the grounds of the rest of that place for the afternoon. On Monday morning, I was included on an email from the director of the club expressing his appreciation for the team from North River Church. And no doubt over the next few weeks, there will be some cards and there will be other uh, thank yous that roll in from the other sites where people were worshiping or were working after we worshiped. And then a group of us were painting at the Veterans Park. Another town official showed up and he was so happy that we were doing this. I have no doubt that we'll hear from some other folks who are expressing their thanks and their gratefulness. Here's the big idea that I want to share this morning. Faith spreads when our spiritual habits lead us to notice people who need what only Jesus can provide. Faith spreads when our spiritual habits, going about what we do on a regular basis, causes us and leads us to notice people who need what only Jesus can provide. Here's the third principle. The first was keep healthy spiritual habits, then practice the discipline of noticing, and then simply give them Jesus. Verse 6 is the key to this whole passage. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. The bedrock message of Christianity is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that raises an important question. What is the gospel? Now, some people answer that question in different ways. If you were to ask that question with many pastors and church leaders, the dominant answer would most likely be, Jesus died for our sins and rose again in victory over death. That's a very good answer, but I'd like to suggest that is not the whole gospel. And it may not have been the answer that Jesus himself would have given. Let me explain why I say that. I'm not trying to move away from that part of the gospel, but it's not the whole thing. When Jesus began his public ministry, his teaching ministry, this is what he said. In Mark chapter 1, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. In Matthew chapter 4, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In Luke chapter 4, But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Did you notice the common ingredient in all three of these early gospel presentations from Matthew, Mark, and Luke? The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The good news of the kingdom of God. The first part of the the gospel's good news is that there is a new kingdom that has come with Jesus, it is a kingdom of God. Anglican scholar N.T. Wright breaks down the background of the New Testament word gospel. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, which at its root means good news. However, prior to the New Testament, it was used whenever a conquering king would ride into a city after a major victory. Sometimes that new conquering king would be from a foreign nation who was taking over this city and the good news would be announced that a new king with a new kingdom was taking over. When Caesar Augustus won his battle, this word was carved into stone that we have good news, euangelion, the same word that the New Testament uses, that because of this victory there will be peace in the world. So what is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? There are two parts to it. The first is that at last the creator God has begun the work of setting things right in the world and there is a new day with a new king and a new kingdom that has come. 
The second is that as the rightful king, God has sent his son to bring victory over sin and death in order to release all who have been captive to the man-made kingdoms of this world. The resurrection pronounced Jesus as both the son of God and the redeemer king who calls all people to come and live under his reign. It is a reign of grace. And as our redeemer and king, Jesus died in our place paying the penalty for our sin and exchanging our sin for his own righteousness to all who put faith in him, in Jesus. Jesus calls us to repent by renouncing every kind of idolatry and to put our faith in Jesus alone and to follow him as a kind of first fruits of this new kingdom while he renews the world and slowly brings it under his reign. The goal is for Christians today to live as citizens of this new kingdom now as Jesus renews and restores the world so that it looks like and operates as heaven does now however long that process takes. And so we pray these words that Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. On earth as it is in heaven. Peter and John on that day acted in the faith that King Jesus had established a new order and a new reign. They didn't have gold or silver to give this man who had been born lame, but they called for God's power to heal the physical and personal damage in his life. With nothing else to give, they gave him Jesus. Now, depending on the conversation that you're in, there are people all around us who need Jesus. Sometimes we start with the news of the kingdom that a new day has come. There is a new king and we need to follow under his reign. Sometimes we start with the core of the gospel presentation about what Jesus did. That he died for our sins and that he calls us to put our faith and trust in him and to follow him. But there are two parts of the same gospel. To truncate either one and never bring them up kind of shortens the gospel if we leave out the kingdom aspect of it, we think that it's just about us and, and Jesus only came to deliver us from our sins and we're so important. If we leave out that part and we only talk about the news of the kingdom, we don't explain why the kingdom news is such good news, but they fit together as two halves of one whole. This is the gospel. There is good news that the king has come. We live under a new day and one day, Every part of this world will recognize that Jesus is the King of Kings and every part of this world will, will bow their knee and they will confess that he is Lord. But the way that we embrace him is by understanding what he's done for us on the cross and through his life and putting our faith and trust in him and being reborn and, and made new on the inside. This is the gospel. And sometimes you're going to have the opportunity to share one part of it and sometimes you're going to have an opportunity to share the other part of it but it's full and it's rich and it's real and it's life-changing. And the gospel of Jesus' saving grace doesn't make sense if we don't understand that he is the rightful king over all and that he wants people to follow him and to make him Lord of their lives. So we've looked at three principles so far. Keep healthy spiritual habits. Second, practice the discipline of noticing. Third, simply give them Jesus. You'll never be able to give them everything that you know in one shot about Jesus, but start somewhere. And fourth, enter into the mystery of how God works. Verse 7 says, Taking him by the right hand, 
Peter helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. I was talking with a friend the other day who has had a return of an aggressive cancer. I told him I was praying for him, and I am. I don't want to just say that and risk making promises that I won't keep. A lot of times if you ask me at the door to pray for something or to pray for you during that week, I'm probably going to grab you and say, let's do that right now, right here. Because I don't want to to make these idle promises, oh yeah, I'm going to pray for you, and then forget all about it. I don't have a gift of healing, but I know how to pray. And I often tell people that when we do this, we enter into the mystery of how God works. There are times when God answers our prayers instantaneously. There are other times where we don't see those answers coming for years and years and perhaps even decades, but we keep praying for the same thing because it's a burden on the heart. We recognize that God isn't a genie in the bottle, that we can rub the bottle and instantly we get three wishes, whatever we want, whenever we want. But God has ordained prayer as the way that we access his power. And there are times when you should expect that God will answer your prayers on the spot because he was waiting for that moment when you would call upon him and he works in our lives. I'm often surprised when God answers immediately because I'm so well ingrained with the idea that most of our prayers take a long, long time before he fulfills those desires. But God still surprises us when he shows up and he answers on the spot. I remember one day when there was a young man from our church who was in a coma and I had met with his parents and we were at the hospital and and while he was at the hospital, the, the dad in this family began to have some heart palpitations and, and they admitted him and so I went upstairs and I saw him in the area where they were tending to him and he said, before you go, would you go down and would you pray over my son one more time? And he knew that's where his heart was. And so I said, yeah, I will. And I went down and I prayed over his son and there, there was another person there standing with him and we were praying together and he came out of the coma as we were praying. I can't tell you what he said because they weren't church words, but the doctors and nurses were really excited because the fact that he responded the way that he did instantly said, oh, there's recognition, there's speech, he's moving his lips, he he has cognition, he understands who he's talking to, and there's so many things that were happening that the doctors and nurses just flooded into that room, and they they were laughing, they were so happy as he came out of that coma. I was surprised. God answered my prayer on the spot, but once in a while he does. And that's what he did with Peter and John on that day. Acts 3 doesn't tell us that this formerly lame man instantly believed in Jesus. It doesn't tell us those words. I don't know what he understood about Jesus, but it does tell us that he was walking and jumping and praising God immediately, which meant that he would have been wrapped up by that community of faith that had gathered to pray And some of the apostles were in the midst of that group. How did this happen? I don't know. We can't explain miracles. But the power of God was unleashed, and through it God was glorified and praised. God may not reproduce the exact same signs and wonders as he did in the times of the earliest church. However, we can apply the principles we see in Acts 3 to our context today when we connect the dots for people about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how Jesus is the king that we follow, people find new life in Christ. 
And this continues to happen with great regularity. I'm not going to tell their story, but I was delighted to see a couple who are here this morning with whom I had the opportunity to, to connect the dots this week and watch them embrace Jesus in a whole new way and with greater understanding. And that was so exciting to happen. And they're here with us today. Keep spiritually healthy habits. To keep them, you have to set them. Practice the discipline of noticing there are needs all around us and things that God wants to do when his people are in tune with Jesus and watching what's going on in the world. Don't forget to give them Jesus. At the root of everything, people need Jesus. And a whole lot of other things start to work out once they have Jesus in their lives. And then enter into the mystery of how God works. Faith spreads, and I believe it will continue to spread when our spiritual habits lead us to notice people who need what only Jesus can provide. Here's the way I want to conclude this morning's message, if you remember nothing else. Just give them Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this wonderful congregation as we begin a new season this fall together. And I pray that in the morning, in the evening, in the middle of the life, at the end of life, in the midst of the challenges and in the midst of joys, that you will allow us to invite you into every aspect of our lives. And as we encounter our neighbors and our friends and our family and consider their needs, help us to be those who bring the good news of Jesus into our world. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.